Hi everyone, today I'm joined by my first sweetmate on my sweetmate series because as I've mentioned before, I think I've mentioned this, I have five other roommates and now is the time where I'm going to start bringing them all into my podcast as guests. And so my first guest is my friend Jesse. So Jesse, do you want to give an introduction of yourself? Yeah. Hi everyone, my name is Jesse. I am one of Emily's sweetmates and um, I study the history of science here. I'm from Seattle, Washington, so big West Coast girl. Um, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if there's anything interesting about you. Well, no, yeah, so Jesse and I met, I mean, I feel like we met freshman year, but we weren't friends. Freshman. Yeah, I like knew about you peripherally. I saw you on Zoom once when I was doing peace outs with Max. <laughs> yeah, I think we... We knew of each other, but I really don't think we started becoming friends until sophomore year. Yeah. And yeah. then I came to FOHO, mm-hmm. and now we live together. Yay! <laughs> um, so I guess on, just on today's podcast, I wanted to talk about, I feel like you have a lot of really unique interests. Um, you've done a lot of valuable work in like sex education and advocacy. So yeah, if there's, do you want to just like go ahead and Maybe just give an introduction of how you got into this work. Maybe, like, go back to high school, what that looked like, and then also, like, what it looks like now in college. Sure, yeah. I feel like I kind of stumbled into it, honestly. I think I was more interested in, like, healthcare as a general concept, but I wasn't really sure where I wanted that to fall. Um, And I had kind of gotten into some community organizing because I was like, I want to be more involved with, like, local politics and things like that and it was through that that I met someone who was an organizer at Planned Parenthood or like my local chapter and so I started working there and what we really wanted to work on was like a comprehensive sex ed bill that was that would make it mandatory in Washington state to teach like very inclusive k-12 through sex ed and through the organizing process for that I was like I really find myself very passionate about this topic mm-hmm. um and I do like to tell people that it comes from, like, me being a bit of, like, a hopeless romantic. Like, I very much like the ideas of, like, love and, like, finding joy through other people. And I think something like sex ed, which not, isn't just about, like, like I guess the specifics of sex, because it really isn't. It's more about, like, healthy relationships, mm-hmm. establishing consent. Um, I think that's so, so important because we do notice that it doesn't happen a lot, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but... I started feeling like really great about that and it was really cool to interact with people just canvassing on the street or like talking to policymakers. Um, and I was like, this is super interesting. So I want to see like where that goes. Um, and something I like began to become a little more interested in was also like menstrual equity. Um, personally, I had a lot of like terrible periods growing up, so I'd have to miss quite a bit of school, which I didn't really realize was not normal because again, sex ed didn't teach me that. Um, so I started, you know, branching out into that field. I really got to explore that here at Harvard because um, we got to tap into, like, a local statewide coalition. Um, and so currently I'm still exploring, like, where my interests lie. I think I've done a lot of work on sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Um, it's exposed me to, like, a lot of different kinds of people, and it's taught me a lot because I think as a pre-med, you don't really work too much in the nonprofit space, um, or it's not so much of a norm. So I guess hearing those perspectives has been really helpful for me too. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I was wondering if you could 
sort of going back in time, um, you speak on like your personal experiences and how your view on relationships and love, which I find very relatable, <laughs> also influenced your decision to go into this work and like your experiences with your period and everything. And do you think that a lot of that was because of like the lack of education that you got or like what, I guess like what is your goal with doing this kind of work? Yeah, I think like a big part of it is a lack of education I got in it. And I mean, my family as well, it's pretty stigmatized in a lot of immigrant Asian cultures, I would say. So we never talked about it. And so the way I learned about it was through online communities um, of like things like fan fiction and stuff like that, which is kind of not really the best way to get your introduction to sex. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I think it has so many ripple effects for down the line. Like, I think, you know, for example, when it comes to relationships, people who come from spaces where they don't know how to have healthy relationships are obviously more prone to getting into like abusive relationships and that becomes a cycle. Um, and it exacerbates a lot of like existing disparities, particularly for like women of color and queer people. So I think it's really important for the state to have like a stake in educating its populace early on on how to maybe navigate it or at least give them the resources to do so in a healthy mm -hmm. way. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, I personally just think everyone should be able to experience love in a healthy way. So I agree. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen <laughs> yeah. very often, but it should. It yeah. should. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, yeah, that's really interesting. I think when I look back on my childhood, I actually wrote a paper about this in my junior year in my oh. history of science tutorial about sex education and how mm -hmm. um, actually when so sex education was formally introduced to public schooling system in the United States but then a lot of a lot of parents and families pushed back on that because mm -hmm. they didn't like the idea of it like opening up the avenue for kids to engage in yeah. sexual activity um, but then as a result there was this disconnect of like sex as like what it was biologically for, but then mm -hmm. also like like that sort of like function became really disconnected from its role in relationships mm -hmm. and just the self. Yeah. And that also perpetuated a lot of harm. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't know, yeah, I look back on my own sex education and I'm like, I don't even know what I learned. Yeah. Like I think I watched a video of a baby being born <laughs> and that was it. I think that's like the classic standard. Yeah, like I, I remember when we were doing a lot of like lobbying for um, for the sex ed bill in Washington, which did pass, yay. Um, there were actually quite a few like representatives or like stake like pa parent groups who would hold anti sex ed rallies, mm -hmm. um, which was really interesting. Um, and something we were hearing that was going around was a lot of these folks were like calling constituents and telling them like a lot of misinformation. Like they were saying, oh this sex ed curriculum means you're going to be teaching kindergartners how to put like condoms on bananas yeah. Yeah. and I'm like I think a lot of people have this misconception that sexuality is just sex which mm -hmm. I think is very harmful and like I think it's easy to stigmatize in that way right but then when you think about sexuality is like the full spectrum of it includes sex yes but it also talks about like how do you conduct relationships with others how do you conduct your relationship with yourself and your mm -hmm. own body and things like that um I just think like it 
doesn't deserve the bad rep that it gets. No, I agree. I feel like it's also a very unnecessarily taboo topic mm-hmm. because we're humans. Yeah. And it's not like it's not an it's not something that happens in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Like it permeates like you said, your relationships with people, your identity with yourself. Mm-hmm. There's like so much more to it. Yeah. Than it seems on the surface. Yeah. It is frustrating for people to kind of reduce it and I under you know, there are many arguments to be made for certain people who are like, you know, sex is only a procreative thing. And I'm like, yes, that is a totally valid way to approach it. I think that is just one part of, like, the spectrum of sexuality. But at the same time, I think something that gets lost is, like, this idea of harm reduction, right? Mm-hmm. Like, even if you stop, like, kids from doing certain things that you view as like problematic for example engaging with like sexual material and things like that like only taking them to pg-13 movies whatever like they're going to find out one way or another especially with like the way that the internet is now um and them being surrounded by friends who don't necessarily have those same restrictions and so i think it does them a disservice to not equip them with the tools that they need to do these things safely if they Mm -hmm. do choose to um it's like parents just don't have as much control as like they like to think. I also so. think that when parents try to control more, mm-hmm. it often backfires. Yeah. And I think with this whole education piece, if you keep kids in the dark mm-hmm. until, I don't know, like like high school or whatever <laughs> age you think is appropriate for them to start knowing about things, like, mm-hmm. they're going to find out in ways that can be harmful. Yeah, definitely. Like, to speak frankly about it, you really don't want kids to be getting their ideas of sex from pornography, mm-hmm. right? Like, there are many things that go into... It's like, it is so separate from the actual idea of sex and healthy sex mm-hmm. that I think, like, I have I did notice a trend, like, when I was, like, in middle school of, like, the ways that the boys around me would talk about, like, the porn that they had watched or, like, certain, like, practices that they'd seen in it and I was like I don't think that's right like Mm -hmm. I don't have that much experience but that feels wrong to me yeah and I think a lot of it is about like you know gender equity and things like that but I mean yeah no that's so true I think it's a very specific kind of sex that is not arguably not healthy and Mm -hmm. also not realistic Mm -hmm. yeah because it's all very it's fake yeah (laughs) and it yeah I, I think I don't know, I guess sort of transitioning to your work now. Mm-hmm. I know you do a lot of work at the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess like loosely, what what does that look like if you're comfortable talking about it? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm a medical advocate there. So it's only one part of like a lot of services like hotline, things like that. Um, but basically when there's a case at a hospital and either the patient themselves wants to report or like the nurses or doctors suspect that something you know might have happened they page a sane who's like a sexual assault nurse examiner who kind of does evidence collection um, provides any sort of care that they might need and we are called like as the medical advocate to be there purely for the person's emotional support um, and eventually to kind of refer them to any other resources outside of that Um, so that can look like many different things, like, one patient, she had me running around, like, the hospital getting her, like, orange juice and ginger ale, um, another one just wanted me to stay there the entire time, and, like, she ended up being, like, Chinese, so we just spoke in Chinese the whole time, um, it really depends on, like, what they need, Mm -hmm. um, but a big part of, like, crisis counseling is really to emphasize the autonomy of the patient, because 
you know, like sexual assault and things like that, obviously, or something that takes that away. Um, and so really, it's like, I, I don't think I'm like that important in the grand scheme of things. I'm just kind of there to let the patient like guide the encounter however they want. If I feel like there's maybe ways in which the providers aren't being as sensitive as they could be or the support persons that they've also brought, that's something I can bring up to them, like kind of in private, outside. Um, so I, I like to think of my job as more of just like gentle nudges. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not like I can't be directive. The most thing the most I can do along those lines is like safety planning. Like yeah. I can walk you through like do you feel safe going back to your home? Do you have a plan to get back there? Do you have someone you can meet there? Um, if you don't feel like that's somewhere you can go, do you have a friend you could stay with? Things like that. Um, but it's mostly just like nudging like answers out of the patient that they might not think of um, by just asking questions to cover kind of like all the circumstances yeah. that they could be facing. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think along the lines of education, a lot of times people don't know what resources are available mm-hmm. or, like, what they can't even do going yeah. forward. Yeah, I think, like, that ends up being really paralyzing for a lot of survivors. Like, I feel like institutions try to say, like, okay, we have X resource available to you, but I know a lot of people are hesitant about those because it's, like, well, I've heard, like, this, my friend had, like, a really bad experience with this coordinator, or, like, I don't think it'll do anything, and, you know, it, it'll do me more harm than good to be reporting it, or things like that. And honestly, those aren't things I have, like, the answers to. For me, all I can really do is explain options better to people, although I wish they would, you know, be more broadcasted in the first place, or people wouldn't have to access them in the first place, but um, for me, all I can do is just let you guys know, like, what are your options, and, you know, make it clear you have my unconditional support, like, with whatever you choose to do. Um, But honestly, I'm still trying to figure out, like, you know, is there a better way we can educate people about these resources? Like, um, so I used to be the co-director of the Wellness Educators, and something that we do is um, safer sex supply pop-ups, so we'll, like, station ourselves somewhere around campus um, and for people who pass by we can give them like safer sex supplies like condoms lube things like that um but and you know obviously that helps in the college setting but there is a lot left to be desired about like how much information are we actually giving them about what's available here um so it's i mean i think i'm still figuring that out yeah yeah i mean I feel like you're, you're doing a lot of important work, and I often feel like every time I talk to people who are, like, involved with this kind of advocacy, mm-hmm. like, they are very passionate about wanting to, f- like, further the scope of their impact, but there's always that fear and, like, wonder, like, what more could we be doing? Yeah. And I think especially on a college campus, it's very salient. Mm-hmm. Like, I will say, like... With the Harvard administration, it becomes kind of difficult because, um, like, for example, we have the Office of Gender Equity, I think that's what it is now, but it used to be OSAPR, like, the Office of Sexual Assault Prevention and Response, and I know a lot of people have been frustrated that that office was taken away um, just because it was an independent entity. Um, so there is a lot, like, that constrains us institutionally. Mm. Um Obviously, there are, like, really cool student groups on campus who try to redress this thing, but it really shouldn't fall on... It really shouldn't fall on the students. Yeah, so, um, 
I'm really glad that there are people who are like still really passionate about this. Um, and I don't know, like once we age into like positions of power or things like that, will things be any different? I hope so. Um, but I know there's a lot of code switching that happens between like when you're in an organizing space versus when you're talking to administrators. Mm-hmm. Um, like even when we were working on getting like products into Harvard's bathrooms, like menstrual products. Like we were the fact that that needs to be worked yeah. for, I'm sorry. <laughs> the fact that, honestly, sometimes, sorry, just mm-hmm. really tan- Like, yeah, I, I when I go into the bathroom and I see menstrual products, mm-hmm. it, my initial reaction is, wow, that's so nice. Yeah. But then I think about it, I'm like, why is that my initial reaction? Yeah. Like, they should be there for free. Yeah, it's like, it's a baseline that, like, no one ever really considers in the sense that, like, so... I talked about earlier being in a menstrual equity group, and we've been working on this bill. Um, it's called the I Am Bill, to get like free products into like I think it's schools, libraries, um, shelters, and prisons. Um, we've been working on that since 2018, 2019, and it kind of stalled because of COVID. But even afterwards, it's been kind of difficult to get it like passed, which is really frustrating. Just because I think it is a relatively bipartisan issue, but then people don't think it's as important. You'll have people who are like, oh, well, you know, it's like toilet paper. You should buy toilet paper. And I was like... It's not because <laughs> it's gendered. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, like, people don't think about, like, the pink tax or, like, um, period poverty, which is this idea that, like, you don't have adequate infrastructure, supplies to really take care of your period in a healthy way. Um, like, you know, people will here in schools be using like rags and things that really aren't conducive to their health just because the school doesn't provide it or like for example when you're in school like I remember actually really strongly in my sophomore year I was in math class and like my period came and I was like oh no because I I was not prepared and I went to my math teacher and she was like oh I have just the thing for you and she turns around and she has like a cabinet behind her with like period products and I was like so grateful at the time but the fact that she had to buy products because she knew that this was a problem mm-hmm. and like hand them out to students is kind of wild to me like teachers already make a pretty poor salary as it is yeah. so, and you know it's not covered by yeah the school like that's yeah. coming out of her personal pocket yeah and it's like it's you know people who don't menstruate don't think about that right. at all like that's just not part of their life which like I don't necessarily blame them for but I do think it is something that they should be educating themselves on yeah I agree I remember in middle school my PE teacher made this big announcement or uh-huh. the very first day of school and they said periods are not an excuse to not show up to PE oh my god and they were like they were basically just saying that we can't, like, people who menstruate cannot use that. That's crazy. As, but the thing is, is PE is, I mean, it's physically intensive. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, periods are a valid reason to miss school entirely. Yeah. But the fact that you want me to come to PE and run mm-hmm. and do all these things, yeah. when you yourself, I mean, I'm not, I don't know. I, I, I just, I knew that they did not understand. Yeah the way it feels and it's so frustrating but then as a student as like a middle school student like what are you gonna say yeah you can't really advocate for yourself in that way it's like because I think about the same way as like oh if you get the stomach bug like Mm -hmm. they're gonna excuse that so easily right and 
like for me like because I had really severe periods like for me is like if my first day comes I know I'm out of commission for the rest of the day like I had to take my painkillers um go into bed and just sleep it off heating pad yeah (laughs) (laughs) I love my heating pad yeah yeah and the idea of running with that kind of pain is like I'm like I can't even stand with that pain but yeah I'm sorry you went through that though it's okay it's honestly like I hate to say it but I do feel like it's a universal experience where no one really gets the care that they deserve yeah Yeah. for sure and I think like I mean as an example like my ex he his his he's from Nepal and his um he told me that it was only like recently that they stopped making his sister go to like a separate like little hut outside of the house wow. to menstruate because like I believe it's like in Hindu culture that it's very like um, in, it, it renders you impure like you're impure during that time anything you touch is impure um, and no the fact that that still exists today is kind of like wild to me yeah 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 that's really interesting and it was just recently that yeah maybe a few years ago because they were like you know, he's from a rural part, and that education is kind of lacking. Yeah. Um, but it's, like, the way that it stigmatizes people who are menstruating, and um, I think people like to, I guess, pretend that it's a problem of, quote-unquote, like, third-world countries, which is something I don't really like, because I'm like, we have such, like, poor infrastructure here. Like, you have kids missing school. Like, you have kids who like, have to walk across the entire school to the school nurse to get something. Um, that impacts, like, their education, their ability to keep up with their peers, their mental health. Um, so I think I'd like for people to get out of the mindset that we're special in some way mm-hmm. um, when it comes to these kinds of issues, especially if you still have people trying to point out that, yes, in fact, it is an issue. Yeah, but, yeah. I want to sort of pivot to, I guess, more personal anecdotes in the sense that mm-hmm. How do you think that your work in this specific field has influenced your relationships and like the way you view yourself? Because it is a very personal topic. Yeah, I think, interestingly enough, I find that I am able to compartmentalize these things like pretty easily, um, which is like good. I guess good in the sense that like we need people who aren't necessarily like devastated emotionally every time that something like this happens. Um, I won't say that it has taught me to approach my relationships with more caution because I think I deeply trust the people around me in that way. Um, I do think it has made me more wary or like, I guess, aware of when people might have certain situations that make them less comfortable in different settings. Like, I think I've become better at reading like body language or like you know, maybe not expecting someone to speak up for themselves in a certain situation. Um, I will say, it's like, I guess it's like weird to say this, but it has encouraged me to embrace my sexuality more. Um, because part of me is like, well, if society keeps telling us that like, we can't have this, we can't have that, like, I'm sure as hell holding onto it, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and I very much try to encourage that in like the women around me. Um, because I'm like, 
we need more girlies. <laughs> I mean, I I, forget, I don't know if Emily's mentioned this, but we're the only two girls. We are the only two girls in our suite. In the suite. Which, <laughs> I feel like that could be a whole summer conversation. <laughs> but I, I, I do, yeah, yeah, I really appreciate, I feel like, the solidarity that yeah. we have. <laughs> Definitely. Like, I, like, honestly, it's just really reinforced for me is like girls gotta support girls they do because i i even think that when i come to all of you with my relationship problems and my love problems mm-hmm. and all that like yeah they can understand but there there will always be certain things that they won't understand yeah it's like why why are you getting so frustrated over this comment that i made like <laughs> It's just funny because I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) Like, the double layer of having to explain that to your friends is really tiring. Like, sometimes you just want to rant and then be like, okay, I get it. You know, like... I think one thing I've realized in, like, my debates with people is that with men especially, it's... There's, like, so many things that you have to tackle Mm -hmm. that, for example, a a comment, like a misogynistic comment... Mm -hmm. Like, tackling that comment is not enough, and it also yeah. usually doesn't work mm-hmm. because it's only, like, the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like normally it's, like, a deeper underlying, like, attitude issue, right? It's, like, you don't see those kinds of, like, if you don't see the world through the lens of someone who is, like, a woman, like, you're not, like, things that might seem very innocuous to you, like, are not going to be perceived in the same way by us. Yeah, right? and the thing is, is I almost feel like their lack of understanding that it is a problem proves my point, mm-hmm. but then I don't know how to explain that to them. Yeah, it is very frustrating to feel like you're so... It's like, it is paralyzing to be like, I can't explain this to you because you're not understanding or like you don't want to understand. <laughs> Emotional labor. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, to their credit, of course, like I feel like our swimmates do their best to understand. Like, I feel like a lot of the the non-women in my life have been quite amazing about yeah. it but it is still frustrating to have to take that like extra leap and being like like I think I do think it is more mainstream for people to start understanding the perspective of women now which is like crazy to say mm-hmm. but like for example it's like why do I feel like not the best maybe walking through Cambridge Commons at night by myself back to the quad yeah right like like, for example, when I'd go out with, like, a friend, and we had to go back to the quad together, but he he had another place to be, I'd be kind of like, oh. Yeah. I I'll, I'll, like, I'll just, like, I literally ran all the way back back home, because I was like, I'm, nothing's getting me tonight, I mean, you know? that park is really sketchy. Yeah. Especially at night. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I saw TikTok where, like, a girl was... She put on what her she called like her midnight mustache. So like she just she just took a stick on mustache and put it on, and I was like, Loki, that's really smart. Yeah. yeah, that reminds me of one of my friends. Every time she goes to the club, she wears a wedding ring. Oh, <laughs> so she can like tell people that she's married. Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> the things that we have to do. I know the way that like I assume that's because like otherwise guys won't back off. Yeah, right? yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean. I think, you know, for what it's worth, people are making more of an effort to understand. Um, And I think there is a lot more lingo these days around, like, recognizing emotional labor and things like that. 
But I feel like that gets into a whole separate issue of how people weaponize it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think um, in one of my classes last semester, we talked about, like, this whole emergence of therapy speak. Um, Like therapy lingo. Yeah, exactly. And I, like, in my discussion post, I talked about how I had been noticing a trend, like, especially, like, on TikTok, but also it's kind of reflective of a lot of things that were, like, in heterosexual relationships, straight men will use these kinds of words. Like, for example, my boundary is that you can't wear revealing clothes. Like You're crossing a boundary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, like, you're gaslighting me right now. And it's, like, I, it's crazy because, I, on one hand, it's great that, like, the stigma of talking about things related to mental health is maybe not such an issue anymore. But at the same time, the ways in which like, it'll end up reproducing the same structures of power that there have been. Yeah. It's, like, really frustrating. Yeah. I mean, I have been, I have experienced (laughs) men using that language, and I think that's what's so frustrating, is, like, it feels like we're making all these leaps and bounds, and then Mm -hmm. everything... Yeah. And then it kind of backtracks. Yeah. I really feel like our society is backtracking. Yeah, I, I totally get that. I feel like it's a very his-sci perspective, like, not, not to bring in the academics. I love history of science. Oh, by the way, Jesse and I both study the history of science. Yes, <laughs> we love it. It's, because I think it's, I think his-sci has really challenged me to think of, like, progress as not linear, or like, not, it's not teleological. Like, there is no end that we are going to that is, like, the ideal society, right? Because every time there is some kind of n- new force introduced, right, we have to contend with how like existing structures of power will end up co-opting it or you know doing something to it that makes it much less desirable than it would have been in a vacuum um for example therapy speak so i will say like i appreciate that i've met men who are in touch with their emotions and who can articulate it um but i will say a lot of the time it can come with like the added danger of like you also know how better to like manipulate people right by using that language because these the whole point of this language is to allow yourself to advocate for yourself mm-hmm. more and like put what you feel into words yeah and so it's a very it's hard to argue with those kinds of terms yeah definitely because it's like you really have a real concern about not wanting to overstep or right. like boundaries are real. Boundaries are so real. <laughs> I've learned that. Oh yeah. A little bit. Yeah, me too. <laughs> the past few months. Yeah. You know, being told that boundaries aren't your style. <laughs> that 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 was crazy. That's wild. Yeah. I'm sorry, that's wild. Yeah. And I was like, it's crazy because I was doubting doubting myself. I was like, is that a boundary? Like that you don't have boundaries like interesting <laughs> yeah interesting it is it is i don't know i think i think everyone needs to go therapy i agree like you don't have to have some acute kind of problem to go to therapy yeah. i feel like people think it's like crisis management no, it really is it's just as much preventative yeah. as it is like a problem solving tool yeah i also like i've been with people who I tell them to go to therapy and their initial Uh, reaction is, I don't need that. (laughs) And to me, that's very much exactly proving my point that they do need it. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's so real. Like, the way that there was, like, a running joke, like, in the suite, how my type was guys who needed therapy, like... (laughs) It's okay, I like toxic guys, so... Yeah, 
It's like, because... I really hope my family's not listening to this. (laughs) It's okay. I think everyone needs to understand that women deal with a lot when it comes to dating. We do. Like, you'll have your situationships who trauma dump on you because they literally have no other healthy outlet of expressing their emotions. Like, like one, one person who I used to be involved with, like, he told me straight up that, like, when it came to him and the boys, like, they would they would like drink themselves into like a stupor and then they would like trauma dump that seems healthy yeah really healthy um and so the only time he he would do it like sober was like when he was with me i do think what happens a lot with like my experience with men is that a lot of them just yeah like growing up they were not conditioned to be able to Mm-hmm. express their emotions and needs yeah and their way of viewing the world is just so different mm-hmm. and then when they get into these relationships like this is kind of the first time where they're given yeah. a safe intimate space mm-hmm. to express themselves and I think that can be a really beautiful thing mm-hmm. but <laughs> it can also it can become very unhealthy yeah and usually it's I don't know, in my experience, like, I've found that it's always been my job to help mm-hmm. them with these issues, but yeah. then also bear the weight of the consequences. Yeah. Like, that's why I like to say that, like, the patriarchy hurts everybody, mm-hmm. including men. Like, the number of girls I've talked to who it's, like, they have become their straight guy friends therapists. Like, I hate that it's such a common, like, phenomenon that you see. And I do think also, you know, in addition to, like, all the emotional labor that a lot of women are doing by supporting these men and giving them that space to express their emotions, I think there's also something to be said about how some women, you know, they do uphold, like, problematic standards around masculinity where it's like, oh, a guy's crying? That's so gross, you know? Like, I think we do also have to do our own part in recognizing that, of course, we are complicit in perpetuating the patriarchy when we make like I guess jokes that we think are harmless or something but in the end you know are the like are part of the reason that a lot of guys don't open up um although I would say this is even more so the case with other men because Mm -hmm. they shame each other for this not saying that it's everyone obviously yeah but in like very normative spaces that tends to be the case yeah yeah so I know we got kind of sidetracked, <laughs> but I want to just end this podcast by asking you, do you think that this kind of work and like these questions that you've been having are things that you want to continue? Because you're going after medical school, mm-hmm. which congratulations, by the way. Yay. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Are these things that you want to continue in your work in medicine or do you think they were... Yeah, I don't know. Like, what do you think your relationship with all this is going to look like? Yeah, I think I've been pretty adamant about wanting to remain, like, a physician advocate. Um, so, like, w- regardless of the practice that I do, I do want to bring in principles of, like, feminism, like, intersectional feminism and, like, social justice. I want to use my, like, doctors have a lot of institutional power, and I do want to leverage that to be helping to make policy change. Um, I know a lot of people think that, like, a, the obvious route for me is to go into OBGYN, um, but I shadowed there. I was like, I did not like it. That's like, fair. 
I, I think intense. it's super important work, but it's really not my style. And I think something else is that, like, I feel like a lot of feminist pre-meds get pigeonholed into OBGYN. Mm. And I'm like, no, feminism is necessary in pretty much every aspect of, like, care. For example, I'm interested in, like, psych, I'm interested in pain, and there is a lot of disparities around women's pain. Like, it's not taken as seriously. I think it's more mainstream now that we understand that, for example, when people have heart attacks, it presents very differently in women. Um, Women suffer a lot more chronic pain. um, And it'd be really helpful to deal with the disparities in that. Because, again, like, a lot of that is society kind of minimizing. Like, for example, women are built to withstand pain because of, like, childbirth and things like that. I mean, that's why endometriosis went undiagnosed for centuries. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I think... Like, whatever track I take or whatever specialty I choose, I would like to continue doing this kind of work. I think nonprofits often benefit from having, like, like from what I've noticed, like, a physician on their board who can do advocacy and link them to, like, more, like, institutional capital mm-hmm. in that sense. Um, so I would like to just, I really do want to yeah. continue that because I'm, like, I feel like that's my greater reason for going into medicine it's your passion clearly yeah yeah and doctors do have a lot of institutional power Mm -hmm. and I think people don't realize that yeah because I think it's oftentimes physicians and medicine as a whole are very contrasted to other industries such as finance Mm -hmm. and all that stuff but in reality like doctors are very political yeah for sure like I think if there's anything I want the listeners to learn it's that medicine is political right like I think, obviously, you know, it's very tempting to be like, oh, you're just helping people, like, you know, you're helping them get better with, like, the best technology around. But then, as a Hisai person would say, right, like, who determines who has access to that technology? Who determines, like, who is making decisions around who to allocate it to, Mm -hmm. right? And what factors even brought your patients to you in the first place? Exactly. Yeah, and it's like, if you don't really understand that, then you really can't be committed to some, like, the health of a population or the health of your community. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, maybe some people don't necessarily have that attitude, but I think it is really helpful to have in a profession like medicine where you can really make that change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's a great note to end <laughs> Is there anything that you feel like we didn't touch on, anything more you want to dive into? Um. Honestly, I think I liked where we went with this whole conversation, so. Cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. I I don't know. I think I, one thing I love about these guest podcasts is just the opportunity to talk to people about what they truly like and mm-hmm. things that make up their identity, and I know this is a really big part of your identity, and it's also, I mean, they're heavy topics, and they also have really personal rele- relevance, so thanks for opening up and sharing about all yeah. this. Um, And thank you, everyone, uh, who continues to listen and support. I am really excited to begin this Sweetmate series. I have some really interesting Sweetmates, and (laughs) I think that they're all going to bring some interesting conversations (laughs) to the table. So stay excited. Um, Thank you, Jesse, again. And stay tuned for next week's episode.